and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about the deep values of the people who shape our common life and how we can all grow in empathy and curiosity about people who might be very different from ourselves. This is a special bonus episode. We are really hard at work behind the scenes preparing our next series for you. We have some really amazing guests that I cannot wait to share, some very big ideas and big questions. Uh, But in the meantime, I was basically missing uh, being in conversation with you listeners. And so before Christmas, we put out a little call, a little ask me anything, and you have wonderfully responded with some really rich and fascinating questions. So we're going to be tackling some of those today. And I am delighted to say I am ably assisted by someone who you haven't really met before, but you have heard his name, our producer, Dan, who is going to join us to read in some of your voices. Hi, Dan. Hello. Nice to be here. Glad to help out with uh, some of these questions. It's a joy to have you in front of the camera for once. (laughs) So um, we have uh, one person who bravely sent in a voice note, um, which we love. So we're going to play that to you and various other people who sent us messages email or Instagram or Twitter that Dan's going to read. And it has been really just a joy as it always is to hear from the people that are listening, because it can feel like a slightly strange and lonely thing to be doing, making a podcast. I'm extreme and extrovert. And so uh, I love working with Dan. I love working with the wider team, but sometimes it feels like we're sort of putting things out into the ether. And whenever something comes back, it's like this um, beautiful moment of human contact. And so we've had a flood of those over the last month or so. And it's been really interesting to see what it was you wanted to think about and talk about together. Because if you've been listening for any time, you will know that the sacred has a kind of twin purpose. And certainly what originally triggered the project was this um, concern with the deepening divisions in our society, with the huge spike in polarization we saw after 2016, the way that the filter bubble, uh, we spoke to Eli Pariser, who originally uh, coined that phrase, these filter bubbles, the way that our online media consumption was forming us and shaping us into understanding each other less and less. And our political environment was getting more divisive. And that continues to be a real golden thread through what we're trying to do to uh, encourage and invite me primarily because I needed it and others who want to join in to be listening with curiosity and empathy, to be resisting the forces that are forming us uh, further and further apart and be committed to staying in a kind of common life together and and relationships with people who are different from us. I think the way the question is framed, what is sacred to you, which I took from the peace building literature, um, rather than from a kind of theological or religious perspective, actually, um, means that over time, what the project has also done is created space for people who are really interested in thinking about what we might broadly call spirituality. Um, I'm a Christian. I'm, you know, that comes up, uh, part of the reason I'm concerned with peace building and reconciliation is because I, that feels like a very core part of my theological tradition. But at no point did we set out to make a podcast that was explicitly a space for people. Um, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not a spirituality podcast. That is not how uh, uh, we originally conceived of it. 
it was something we were very open to people talking about when they were talking about their deep values, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't what the original trigger for the project. And so it is fascinating to me to see um, from this sample of people who've written in how much uh, how much of that is what's on the top of people's minds from a range of perspectives, from people who have been part of faith traditions and are feeling pushed out, from people who have never been involved in any kind of form of um, organized religion and are really intrigued but don't know the way in, <laughs> from people who have questions and concerns. And it really has been um, a, a lovely thing. It's one of the things I enjoy sitting with and talking about and creating space for. And it was funny, this the last series, I saw it really clearly with Anne McElvoy, who, um, again, we don't invite people with any explicit, like you have to come on and talk about your spirituality or you have to come and talk about God. We want anyone to be able to talk about their deep values, religious, non-religious, you know, uh, uh, um, strongly atheistic, secular. If if you are listening and that's you, you are so welcome here. This should be something that we can be talking about together. But Anne McElvoy was just like, yes, I've been invited on this thing to talk about God and I never get to talk about it. You know, I get, I get to come and say, this is all the ways I'm confused about religion. Um, and it's making me think about how just allowing space for that, just saying that is one of the valid things that you can reflect on here about your values. And I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm not going to tell you you're stupid. I'm not going to tell you you're evil. I'm not going to tell you you are, you know, uh, dead to me or now my best friend because you agree with me. I'm just going to, uh, we are just going to try and hold, hold spaces, a overused word, but we're going to create um, an aural situation in which these deep metaphysical questions and longings can be aired. And so those are some of the things that you have been airing in your questions to me. And I'm really delighted um, to be part of that conversation and, and that part of that community, even, even while wanting to hold really firm to one of the differences we want to be um, engaging across with respect and humanity is people of different faiths and no faiths and people who don't know and people who might actually be quite hostile and nervous to the role of religion or spirituality um, in our world, you're welcome to and will continue to be so. So, Dan, do you want to kick us off with uh, a question from our, our lovely list of listeners? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, really great questions in there. I felt I resonated with a lot of them, so I'm quite looking forward to having you answer them. Um, first one uh, is a question from Hannah Clifton. So this is an audio uh, recording that she sent in, and hopefully it will start playing. Hi, Elizabeth and the Sacred Team. My name's Hannah. Firstly, Happy New Year and a huge thank you for your vast and beautiful output in 2023. I'm so grateful for the way the sacred enriches my own personal and our public conversations. And so I really appreciate the time and depth of thought you continue to put into it. I'm getting in touch with a question off the back of that stunning conversation you had with Cole Arthur Riley back in August, because I'm really curious about the way you both view liturgy that it forms collective truths and that there's a kind of mysterious solidarity there. I struggled a little bit with the part where you talk about saying the creed in its entirety, even when you don't believe all of it that day or when it doesn't make sense to you because it's that collective activity of solidarity. 
And I wondered whether you ever envisaged situations in which you would say, I can't with integrity join in with saying that, or I'm no longer true to myself, to my doubt, to my own perspective if I participate in this. And so I wondered how can we understand the space between the beauty of that communal act, especially with the sense of connectedness to history that comes with liturgy, and also not compromising ourselves or being dishonest with ourselves if we differ in perspective. Hannah, thank you for that uh, lovely question. I think it's one of the things that was coming to mind when I was uh, reading through these questions was this phrase border stalkers. It's something that I haven't even really gone and looked into the origin of the phrase. Someone once once said, oh, you're a border stalker. And there's a couple of like people on Substack. And I think it's one of those phrases that people cluster around, but there is certainly a sense of um, want, bo- both wanting to belong to something and never feeling quite at home that I think uh, pot- potentially runs through a lot of people who are drawn to the sacred and other things in this space. And I did say in another place that I think it's entirely um, possible and valid to be part of a congregation or a community and not believe all the same things. In fact, I think it's almost impossible to find yourself in a congregational community and believing the same thing as everyone else. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever been in a church where I've believed everything that the leader believes. Um, uh, currently in one where there's just a long ongoing and lively conversation, um, about all the ways that we might do things differently or think about things differently. But for me, that's what community is. It's what it's about. It's part of its beauty. It's not. Um, it's a feature, not a bug. And so being in spaces where something about the liturgy for actually more often for me, it's the songs. I, there'll be bits in hymns that I trip over or bits in worship songs that I think I cannot sing this sincerely today. Um, and so I have, I have stayed silent through the creeds in periods where I've just been like, I don't know what to think about any of this, but I want to be here. It feels like a healthy space to be. Um, Hannah's question about, you know, when is, when is there an integrity thing about staying silent and when is there, actually, it's all right to say something that you don't believe that day because belief is not such an individual thing anyway, that it's something that you collectively hold as a body. Um, it's really interesting, Hannah, and it's really generative for me. And I don't think it, this is going to come up a lot with these questions, I'm sure. I don't think I have any kind of concrete or fixed answer. What's coming to mind is we choose the stories that we tell, hopefully consciously, sometimes unconsciously. We choose the rituals and the um, rhythms of our lives. And I want to be doing so more intentionally to so that they're forming me towards the good. So they're forming me towards being more loving and more free and more compassionate and braver. And so one of the things I do is I coach people and I coach people who are thinking about their vocation and their purpose and their meaning and how that relates to doing a good job at work. And often what we end up talking about is the story that someone is telling. You know, what is the story that you're telling about yourself? What is the story that you're telling about your colleague? What is the story that you're telling about your purpose? And on almost all of these big things, it's not that we can say we objectively, in an evidence-fixed fashion, know exactly what the truth is here. But we can choose what's the story we're telling about it. We can choose 
what we want to inhabit. We can choose almost what we want to believe. And I think there's a difference between trying to fool ourselves and pretend we believe something that we don't, which is when I wouldn't say the creed, for example, if I was in that place. And thinking, I don't know, but I think this is the kind of story that will help me be more loving and more free. And so I'm going to immerse myself in it. It That's making it sound like I think Christianity is just a useful story, and I don't. I think it is true myth, which is what Tolkien and C.S. Lewis talk about. Um, But honestly, on the days where I can't quite get my head around that, I still... And, you know, Ian McGilchrist would talk about a kind of right hemispheric forms of attention, the right hemispheric forms of knowing. I still want to be immersing myself in these communities and these practices that feel like they're leading me towards the kind of person that I want to be. That's a long and complicated answer, but it was a really good question. So I thought it deserved it. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. Um, Cool. So the next question is from John Ablett. Thanks for sending your question. And he has asked... Is there anyone you'd like to invite back, either because you feel you didn't have enough time or somehow didn't connect as well as you could? It's a good question. Yeah. I think... So what immediately comes to mind is the fact that I interviewed Andrew Copson three times. This is like a famous, Andrew, if you're listening, thank you for your patience. This is a famous story in the sacred team because at the time we asked to interview Andrew Copson, who is head of um, Humanist UK, which is one of the big kind of non-religious membership campaigning groups in the UK. And at that point, I was the director of Theos and Andrew was always being, we were always being booked onto media programs in opposition to each other. Basically, in, in repeated instances, we would be both given pugil sticks and then made to fight each other on TV or radio. Um, and I, you know, quickly realised this wasn't how I wanted to be uh, operating, and, and stopped doing that. But it was one of those key, like, okay, we want to have conversations across difference. I'm religious. Let's talk to this person who is very sceptical about the role of religion and would like there to be less public religion. I was so nervous about honoring my principles of listening with curiosity and empathy whilst always be also being quite fight or flighty because that was the formation of the encounters that we'd always previously had. Um, that the first two, one of them, I forgot to press record. One of the, I just can't even remember that. It just went bad. It was just incredibly embarrassing. Um, and it meant that by the time we get to the third one, I was just like, let's just get this done. Let's just get it in the can. <laughs> Stop humiliating myself. <laughs> um, uh, and so some of that interview, I didn't feel like I was particularly on my best form. Oh, it did mean looking back is that there is one real moment of vulnerability in that interview where we were able to really see each other and understand each other's perspectives um, and understand some of what can cause difficulty in those situations where you're talking to someone with very different beliefs from you that if it's not careful, even if you are not consciously contemptuous, someone else can feel that you have been, that you are contemptuous towards them. And I certainly felt like Andrew had a level of contempt for me. And that was what was uh, in the mix. And I think we got to a moment of real honesty. Um, So it wasn't a complete write-off, but the (laughs) process was very painful. Um, there's a wonderful woman called Christy Watson, who is an incredible writer. And I just was really tired that day and really on form 
off off my form. And it was still in the, I think in the season where I was learning how to do these interviews, not in person. We put an extremely high value on um, conversations in person pre-pandemic because it's a vulnerable thing you're asking someone to do to reflect on their values. And, um, you know, we're social creatures. We respond to people's body language, uh, trying to communicate to someone that I am a safe person to talk to, that I'm not going to do a gotcha, that I'm not going to, um, uh, try and shame someone that it's, uh, an okay setting in which to not really know and to meander and to, and to let new thoughts come and not have to be highly polished and all those kind of things. It's much easier in person. And we've pivoted to on mainly online, like the rest of us all have, and there are real benefits of that. And we've got a lot better at it, but certainly those early interviews that we were doing online, I was still working out how to connect, how to create rapport. Um, some of those I listened back to, and I think that was perfectly fine but we never really got below the surface. And that's the thing that I really enjoy. Thank you, John. All right. Uh, now from another John, John Ranford. Um, Every culture looks afresh at how the Bible relates to them. We've now left the Holocene where man has changed the weather, etc. How do uh, How do we do theology in the Anthropocene? For example, there are parallels between the invention of bricks enabling the power of Babel, uh, the Tower of Babel, and the discovery of oil. There you go. Nice light question. Thank you, John. Um, the honest answer is I don't know, but I would be interested to know more. I think there's probably quite a lot of people in this community who um, are doing that work. And if that's you, please share in the comments, write to us. We can add things into the show notes. I do think that this question of what do we hold sacred? How do we want to live becomes, who was I talking to? Wow, the guests will, my mental filing system starts to break down at this point after this many interviews. But there was someone I was talking to about how moments of crisis force, um, moral profundity to the surface. You can't just kind of ignore these big metaphysical questions. And the uh, Jonathan Rousen, who was perhaps our very, very first interview, talks about the kind of polycrisis, these, the metacrises, you know, these, these rolling sense of, uh, wow, we do not know what we're doing. We are not control of, in control of this world um, should force us back into, and I think are forcing us back into the real sources of wisdom, which obviously I believe a key one is our wisdom traditions. And for me is, is Christianity itself. Um, but I can't pretend to be doing that academic work. And I would really like to read people who are. Great. Um, yeah, I really feel like you touched on this in your episode with Dougald, uh, Dougald Hine. Yes. And I, I think um, if you haven't already, John, definitely worth going back to that. I think um, both yourself and Dougald had really interesting insights there on what to do amidst uh, climate crisis and 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 all of that. Yeah. Um, I think honestly, my shorthand response is, let's really live it. Like the 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 theorizing and gesturing towards what does it mean to walk justly and live humbly and seek mercy. Um, that yes, we need more books. Yes, we need more thinking. But also, I need to live the things I believe to be true. 
Yeah. And you need to be with people who who have a share a similar vision as well. And in that sense, I think that's sort of where you both landed on uh, reaching for community and preparing for um, what was the line that he used? Uh, uh, Preparing ruins um, for for what comes later. And I I think that was very profound as an insight. Yeah. Yeah. um, I'm trying really hard not to wang on about my book too much because it's not out (laughs) to me and there is a real risk of boring you all to death with it, but there is a chapter in there on avarice and um, it's loosely themed around the seven deadly sins. And that chapter was so challenging to write because my tradition and my understanding is all the wisdom traditions are extremely direct about greed, about avarice, about taking more than we need, about hoarding wealth, about uh, allowing material idols to eat us alive. And um, it's really bracing, like painfully bracing (laughs) to take seriously what my own tradition teaches about the love of money and comfort and convenience over justice for the poor and the good of the earth. So I'm not sure it's theology for the Anthropocene, but making myself read and reread and reread those scriptures and working out how to at least attempt not to ignore them is one of the commitments I've made to myself. Great. Uh, Next question is from Jess Reed. Thank you, Jess. Um, She writes, hello. Firstly, I'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And to thank you so much. And to thank you so much for continuing to thoughtfully interview such a wide range of perspectives. It's no exaggeration on my part to say that your podcast has been a huge part of my journey from atheism to a kind of tentative Christianity. Tentative in that I feel like I found myself living in the undeniable reality of its truth, but unclear where to go. Uh, Which church, which strain of Christianity, where to begin, what to do. I had a a horrible experience at evening prayer one time with some older people. I'm a youthful looking 34 who seemed mad I was even there and it's frightened uh, me off somewhat. What would your advice be to someone who wants to go to church to find a community, but is just unclear where to start? Oh, Jess, I'm so sorry that happened. Christians, we can be our own worst enemy, honestly. Um, yeah, I'm really sorry. If congregations can't be a place of welcome, then what are we doing? Um, and I think this is probably a question that a lot of other people share. I've got various friends who had some kind of, uh, have some Jewish heritage and they're, and have, have not been connected with it. And they are, um, wanting to re-engage with that part of their life or, um, join a congregation um, and lots of others who don't, who, who wouldn't know where to find themselves in a kind of religious landscape, but similarly are like, okay, I need community. I need to be part of that something, but what, how do you even find that? Where do you begin? We're so tuned to, to joining things online and keeping our options open and um, uh, acting as consumers, not congregants, really not, you know, people who, the, the language in, in, in the New Testament is about people who are members of the same body, who are committed to each other at a really, really deep level. It's just like not what we're trained for. It's really uncomfortable. It uh, is really annoying. 
the whole process of getting to be properly part of a community just takes a lot of courage and um, overcoming things in ourselves. So I just want to sort of say that I don't want to cheerlead anyone who's thinking about it and say, you're not imagining that this is hard. <laughs> you're not the only one that finds it hard. Um, I think it's so worth it and keep going, but don't be surprised if it really grates on everything you've expected. You've been told is good. I actually think for those people who are seeking to be part of a spiritual community that's not Christianity, in where I live, in some ways it's simpler because there's less choice. And removing this sense of, I have all this choice, so where do I go, is one of the things that can really help. So if you're drawn to Buddhism, there probably is only one Buddhist um, con you know, gathering, congregation <laughs> option near where you live. And so that's where you go. And to an extent, that would be my advice for anyone wanting to, to join a congregation or join a community. Reduce your options, <laughs> like not, not completely, but this mindset that we get into where we read online reviews and we try and uh, tailor our exact preferences to the thing that we want wanting to connect with it's just is, exa is exactly the sign of habits that con that that living in community healthily can can train you out out of and so we go to our parish church and that is the closest church and um that isn't hasn't been true my whole life and i don't think it's a hard and fast rule um because there are reasons why you might not feel like you can find a sort of life-giving community there. But as a first step, go to the closest church, <laughs> go to the closest community. Um, just be and listen, see if someone welcomes you, um, see if there is something intriguing, even though there will be, I'm sure, myriad things that put you off. That is the reality of, <laughs> of things that don't adapt to our preferences. Um, so yeah, start local, reduce your options as much as possible. Be honest about where you are so that people know how to greet you. In an ideal world, everyone would be um, open and enthusiastic and excited about anyone walking through the doors from any point on the um, multiple spectrums on which we place ourselves. Um, but you can help you can help people welcome you well by saying I'm new or this is my first time or I'm not sure about church, but I thought I'd try it. And I would say 95% of cases, people will be really excited that you're there. They might be too excited. That's the other risk. <laughs> um, that obviously wasn't your experience just at evening play because I'm really sad about that. So yes, go local, uh, help people welcome you by, if you, if you're able by saying a bit about where you are and it will mean that they know how to engage with you a bit more. Um, if all of that still feels too scary, go to a cathedral. Cathedrals are the best place to go where you just want to kind of anonymously sit and listen and, um, and be in silence and um, just sit a bit longer in those rituals um, and in that liturgy. And then I would say style is not irrelevant. And so even though I would actually um, – Turns out I have lots of thoughts on this, Dan. Sorry, <laughs> not keeping this. I'm not keeping this uh, short. Um, but I would say people tend to 
think about joining congregations based on do they align with the beliefs and do they like the style, the aesthetics of the thing? I put much less of emphasis on do I align with the beliefs because my beliefs change, develop. Uh, I, I like being around people who are different from myself. As long as we've got like enough core common ground that I don't feel like it's forming me in a direction I don't want to go. I'm really happy to hold the tension of different beliefs. I find it harder to overcome differences of style, but it's important that I do. We went to a very high liturgical church for quite a long time that was very austere and very somber and very intellectual, all of which in theory I thought would work for me. But as it turns out, I'm like a hands in the air girl and I need four chord guitar songs. That's how like I connect. And so I've learned that about myself. Other people, that would be their worst nightmare. And you're unlikely to keep coming back week after week if everything about the service makes you cringe. <laughs> so it's all right to take the, st the style of the thing into account a bit. But I would say the key criteria is the people. Do you think they have integrity? Do they seem kind? Do they welcome you? Do they feel like they are growing in love? And, you know, in my language, in faith and hope and love, do they feel like they're people who you could walk alongside and feel like you're growing. Um, but it's really a big decision. And um, I just want to cheer you on and say, please take your bruises and uh, when you're ready and able, give it a go. And it may be that if you write to us and tell us where you are amongst our community, there may be someone who's listening who would be like, oh, I'll, you know, come to my thing or... Um, we can, we can find a place where you would be properly welcomed because I'd love that for you. Great. Um, yeah, thanks so much, Jess. Um, next question. Well, there's a couple of them that are probably worth combining. One's more of a statement, which is fine. Um, and the other one's a bit more of a question. Which one do you want first? Why don't you do the statement and then go into the question? Great. Cool. So the statement's from Mark uh, Savinsky. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, and he wrote, Elizabeth, as you said on Justin Briley's podcast, I'm one of those 30s, 40s, 50s hyper-intellectual guys who are hovering around going back to believe uh, 45 years in the wilderness, so to speak. I have way too many questions for you, Elizabeth. Right now, I'm fully reinvestigating my Christian roots while still taking in the atheist slash secular uh, point of view from the likes of Alex O'Connor, my hovering, as you call it, is more a holding pattern or fence sitting. Um, and this bit's great. Running out of fuel or splinters in your backside are the dangers of this position. <laughs> Lol. <laughs> <laughs> that's good self-awareness. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, and then, um, yes, following in, a question from AJ Bremner. Uh, Dear Sacred Podcast, my question builds on some of the themes that Elizabeth has explored this season and uh, which were shown in some prominence in one of Paul um, Vanderclay's recent podcasts. Uh, in that podcast, I think taken from Justin Briley's recent work, Elizabeth talked about how she has ministered to lots of men who sit on the sidelines of belief. I can empathize with them. I used to believe I was a practicing if buffet um, Catholic. But it fractured after dealing with some trauma. I'm on a long journey, I hope, back, and I don't know the road or where it really leads. 
I've bought and read, well, at least mostly read in McGilchrist's uh, The Matter With Things. I don't know if anyone's read the whole of that book uh, yeah. and listened to dozens and dozens of Viveki podcasts. Uh, I sit in that milieu. Uh, I've found a lot of solace in it as they are both wise and I think have helped me intellectually realize my intellect was leading me astray. But Elizabeth's recent call on Paul van der Klee, uh, oh, sorry, on that Paul van der Klee showed to just surrender and get on my knees hit me naturally. Oh, sorry, hit me like a thunderbolt. So my question is, how do you surrender? How do you believe? It used to come uh, naturally, but now I'm all damnable questions and probabilities, uh, reservations and worries. I don't doubt belief is beautiful and better for me and those around me, but whether it is true and how true and what are the parameters of that truth is just this tiresome loop around which I travel. It's all so bloody insular and egocentric. Maybe all I need is more time, but I am keen for whatever wisdom you have to share. Uh, I want to let go, but bloody hell, I find it hard. I've also emailed Red Hand Files uh, to ask Nick Cave how he seems to handle this his uncertainties with some grace. Hopefully he replies. Uh, regardless of whether uh, you get the above question, thank you for the podcast. It is a treasure and you are doing a wonderful job. Uh, Elizabeth is an absolute font of wisdom and sometimes says uncannily apt things uh, with which okay. I'm wrestling. Thank you, both of you. That is really um, vulnerable and honest and human and beautiful. It's a real privilege, actually. I, I worried after I said that on Justin Briley's podcast that it would sound more diff not defamatory, would sound more dismissive than I meant it to be. Like ge genuinely, it is a great gift and privilege of my life that people feel able to share some of these what is this one that you just put it so beautifully both of you um real wrestlings just absolute kind of faith and doubt all mixed in and the longing and the fear you know mark vernon i spoke to for his channel and on the on the podcast and he talked about like not wanting to be taken for a fool you know not wanting to be Wanting to be conned by this thing that doesn't offer any certainty. You know, what if we're just intellectual children needing a crutch? I think there's two. Yeah, I don't have anything that feels like wisdom or advice other than wanting to stay in conversation. The two things that came into my mind were... Um, intentional formation and it sounds like both of you have probably heard enough ideas <laughs> uh, and it's not to say you know you have to stop listening to the podcast and reading the books and seeking to to make the intellectual rubik's cube fit together in your mind but probably is you're never gonna fully de-risk a leap of faith it is you don't you don't get to be you don't get a, you don't get a advance guarantee. Um, in the same way, you don't when you get married. You don't, you don't in any relationship. Um, you can't de-risk it. You can't de-risk falling in love. You can't de-risk an act of surrender. 
you can't um, keep yourself safe. That is not what that is. Um, and so I'd say, you're welcome here. There's no hurry unless you feel a hurry. But rather than just kind of seeking more and more and more ideas about it, you both sound pretty clear, honestly. I would say, how do you attend to your formation? And you both mentioned McGill, Chris. So how do you decenter your left hemisphere a bit and immerse yourselves in the rituals and practices um, of the things you want to believe? It's going back to what I said to Hannah. And it's what Pascal would say. I would always point people to Pascal's wager, which is not at all what we think it is. When I when I read it in the original, this is not something I do regularly. Honestly, it makes me sound much more intellectually highbrow than I and than I am. But it's one of the things where I've gone back to the original and I've read it, and I was like, wow, that is not what I thought it was. It is a man arguing with himself about doubt and faith and belief. It's beautiful. It's fresh. It's wonderful. It's given me a huge crush on Pascal, even though he's been dead for four hundred years. Um, I would, uh, but he lands at go to church. <laughs> if you want to believe it, go be with people who believe it, go to church. So there's that kind of put yourself in the place where your imagination can be formed, your attention, you know, we see what we pay attention to. Attention is a moral act. There are some things you cannot see, you cannot get to without a right hemispheric form of attending. And so lean into your right hemispheric forms of attending, which is a very over-intellectualized way of saying, go to church. Um, and the second thing I would say is about surrender. Some people, I think, David Brooks said on the podcast that his coming to faith was like looking back on a long train journey and realizing he'd crossed a border and moved from one land to the other. And I think that does happen. For some people, from the tenor of your questions, my guess would be, this is going to make me sound like such an old school revival temp preacher, <laughs> which is not how I usually sound, but I, honest, okay, I'm just going to be really honest. This might, be, might get me into trouble, but honestly, I'd find a friend that you trust and sit with them and like physically get on your knees and say, I don't fully understand, but I want to follow you. Like that's, that's, you know, I accept these things. I long to be true for myself. And I, I want to be in relationship with you, Lord. Um, yeah, do it publicly and do it physically with your body. That I think that's how you do it. In answer to your question, how do you surrender? I think you just do it. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad you brought up Pascal's wager because when I read the question, I um, went back and watched a clip from um, the live recording we did with Oliver Berkman, where you talked to him about Pascal's wager and you said something very similar there. And um, my, my summer, this past summer was just filled with, after reading this question, I was just like that, that pretty much sums up exactly where I was, where, on, on an intellectual level, I felt like I, I, based on personal things that were going on, I'd much rather not 
believe in God, but I don't really have an intellectual reason. I feel that I can justify doing that. But on an emotional level, I'm sort of just, I, I'm not here anymore. Going down that rabbit hole and then eventually getting to a point of just, oh, I, I, I miss feeling as though I'm in a relationship. Um, and then, uh, as you said, sort of just realizing, okay, if I'm going to, probably the best bet I've got at this point is just throwing myself into something and it can be very small. Um, uh, like, uh, I think, um, AJ, you mentioned you were formerly a Catholic. Like one thing that I've been doing is just going praying compline in the evenings with my wife, um, as just a small gesture of, okay, this feels like something that's manageable on a daily basis. Um, but not, but, but ho hopefully personal enough that, that something will be, uh, rekindled. Um, yeah, really lovely, vulnerable question uh, and um, comment from Mark as well. Thanks for sharing that, Dan. I think I knew <laughs> the, I think I knew the outlines of some of that, but not in that detail. Yeah, which just goes to show you could make a podcast about this stuff and still not have the <laughs> proper in-depth conversations you should be having. Yeah, but I think I think it's normal, and I think you said in the conversation with Oliver. That it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a cyclical thing. It's just, and I think um, C.S. Lewis talks about this as well. You know, when he was an atheist, he had doubts about being an atheist. And when he became a Christian, he had doubts about being a Christian. And sort of, um, that's not necessarily what, what, what AJ is specifically saying, but I think uh, doubt and plugging yourself into something as a cure for doubt, or, or as Ian McGilchrist would say, you know, sort of not, not getting overly uh, deep into left hemispheric hemispheric thinking or, or, or view on the world and sometimes just taking a step back and, and living a bit mm. and engaging with the same thing, but from a different perspective can be a helpful, refreshing um, way of approaching life. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really humbling thing. I think those of us who have probably too much education, it, the idea that there are, some things, and in fact, possibly the biggest thing that you are just not going to be able to square fully and completely in an airtight way all the time is really annoying. <laughs> but the older I get, the more I realize that most of the most important things are like that. Hmm. And it's not to downplay the role of the reason and the intellect. It's to broaden what we mean by them. And I do like more and more think of myself as, I, w I want all the labels. I want to be an evangelical, Catholic, conservative, liberal mystic, but the, um, that mystical tradition that is, calls us into silence and calls us into mystery and calls us into surrendering that cl clenched will to understand everything with our limited human partial particular set of lenses. That feels like the beginning of maybe that's the beginning of wisdom. Like maybe that's what the fear of God means is the, like the, the letting go of the need to understand before we will act because those things are not actually separate. They, mm. they connect to each other. And as we act and as we move and as we, you said something to me, what did you say? A Latin phrase. Uh, lex orandi, lex credendi. Love it. This is why yeah. it's good hanging out with the Catholic. They know Latin. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, as, as we worship, so we believe. Is that what it is? As we pray, so we believe. Yeah, yeah, essentially. 
the yeah. lore of something, but um, no, my Latin ends there, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's the gist. That, yeah. That, the way we, the way we act and embody our, we don't, we, yeah. It's the idea that we have to line everything up in our head before we can take steps in the direction of things. Actually, sometimes it's the steps that makes mm. everything line up yeah. in our heads. Which relates to, to Hannah's question right at the start. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, next? Next is from Paul Mitchell. Hi, Elizabeth. Hope you're well. A uh, question for the listener-themed podcast, if you're still taking them. Uh, for those who have been in Christian communities that have promised much and then dissolved, causing pain for members, is there a way to remain positive about spiritual community connection and not withdraw, saying it's all too hard and ends in tears anyway? Oh, friend, yes, that is very, very painful. We have been there. Oh, it's just, it's <laughs> so hard being a human because we so need other people and we so hurt other people. I think it has been re really real for my family and I over the last few years and I have come to a, really p think about community and friendship as as in almost equally important character categories as we think about with romantic love. And we have all this theorizing about romantic love and very little theorizing about how to be in community and how to be a good friend over our lives, even though um, there, sh there, should, there should be more intentional, serious emphasis given to those things. So the way I think about the the wounds of belonging. Sociologists talk about the, the, the wounds of belonging that we both long to belong and those are the places where we're most vulnerable um, is around heartbreak and uh, that when we have our heart broken by a romantic partner, there is a temptation to never fall in love again, right? To never allow ourselves to be vulnerable in that way with anyone else. But I think most of us know that that is not how you solve <laughs> uh heartbreak or how you how you live a good life or how you flourish that when we get our heart broken either by a romantic partner or by a community this process is the same we have to grieve it we have to i think weed out bitterness and resentment we have to forgive what needs forgiving we have to ask for forgiveness for our part because there always will be a part that we've played in things i think and then we need to try and keep our hearts soft and be hopeful that um, there are communities where we can belong and serve and grow um, again. And probably they'll hurt us at some point too <laughs> and will hurt them. Um, but we can't live without it. The phrase that was coming to mind as I was reading your question earlier was to whom else shall we go? Like we can't, we can't live without community. And we know how much we as individuals and societies atrophy when we try and protect ourselves from the wounds that community can bring us. And so I just want to invite you into grieving what you've lost and where you have been scarred and bruised. And then when you're ready and as far as possible to be brave and to go and see if there's a place where you can fall in love again, <laughs> it will be different and you need good boundaries and you need to know, uh, you know, what you wouldn't do as you go into that different community and what you, maybe some dynamics you would be alert to in ways that you weren't alert to last time. You know, first love is first love. Second love should be wiser. 
<laughs> um, but don't never fall in love again. That would be my invitation to you. Great. Uh, where are we at? Next question from Anne Weinhold. How can we maintain compassion for others and an understanding of sacredness in every human while holding a deeply rooted belief of nature being sacred in the face of the ongoing biodiversity and climate crises? My dad used to say, if I want to be with God, I can go to the forest. I don't need the church. He often preferred the company of non-human beings and saw humanity as overwhelmingly ignorant of everything he held sacred. I follow in his footsteps. And thank you so much. And I think there'll be a lot of people listening who um, feel a lot of resonance with that. Um, honestly, I don't, I don't experience that as a tension or something that's in competition. It feels to me like those, and a respect for the sacredness of humanity and the dignity and value of each human person is aligned with our care for and honoring of nature and creation. And uh, Pope Francis's encyclical was coming to mind, Laudato Si, and Francis of Assisi, after whom Pope Francis is named, and his writing of that kind of brother moon and sister sun, I've probably got that the wrong way around, um, and the sense of our, um, yeah, our belonging to the earth and the earth's belonging to us, and uh, humans are part of nature, right? In my, in my tradition, we are all created. We are creation. We are, um, uh, we are connected at a very, very deep level. And it has been, you know, some bad theology that has made us think otherwise that we are somehow, um, dominant over or, uh, uh, yeah, that we are, um, that it's an either or, that there's a tension between seeing and honoring the beauty of this earth and seeing and honoring the beauty of human beings. I don't, I don't see that we need to do one or the other. Um, and I would say there is, in most places, there's several in the UK, I don't know where in the world you are, but there are um, a movement called forest churches, which I have often thought if there was one near me, I'd love to go and be part of a forest church. And maybe that might be a way of bringing those two things together, if indeed that is something you're interested in. Lovely. Um, thanks, Anne. Next is from Rishi uh, Vaidya, or Vaidya. Dear Elizabeth Oldfield, um, as preamble to my question, I agree that the addition of post-episode reflection and even an end-of-series holistic summary of key themes have been really good additions to the show and its depth. However, when reflecting at the end of the later series, it was mentioned um, that some guests had expressed hurt at the way they were portrayed in such reflections. My question therefore is without necessarily naming names, what were they upset about? Uh, have there been any common themes unifying uh, when people have expressed hurt? Uh, in the interviews I've listened to, I always think the guests have been treated with uh, nigh on unfailing respect. Although admittedly, it must be very human to feel acute self-consciousness when analyzed after a deep values-based chat. Wishing you all the best for the forthcoming series. Rishi, thank you so much. I, um, yeah, I'm not going to name names and I probably made it sound like there were more instances of, um, causing hurt than there have been. Um, 
where I think people, ha- you're, you're right. A lot of it is, it, it's, it's quite vulnerable and exposing. And I am always trying to, as you can hear, because I arm a lot and meander around, not script what I say. Um, I've never written a script for the sacred. I am always trying to respond to the person in front of me or respond to your questions on the hoof. Um, and so sometimes it's just word choice or a way that someone wouldn't have chosen to describe themselves. Um, and sometimes I just, I misspoke. So, um, yeah, most people have felt, I think, honored and listened to. It has your question and my experience of doing these kind of reflections has made me think about my values and the fact that I have almost equally strong values about care for people and sometimes overly overly intense attunement to people's feelings and honesty and not saying things I don't mean and the power actually of of saying what I mean, of saying what I think, of, of saying the things that we're often too polite to say or uh, we're too worried to say um, or we... Um, feel embarrassed that we think um, so much of our public persona, both online and in public settings like this, but also honestly with friends and our local communities is the the triangulation of how will I come across? You know, will I seem stupid or grumpy or ignorant or arrogant or, you know, all of these things that we do. And I more and more feel that as a barrier to our intimacy with each other and our ability to know and be known, which is of kind of paramount importance in our flourishing. And so I am both trying to to care and attend to uh, the feelings of the people I'm engaging with and say what I actually think. <laughs> and those two things, uh, it when yeah those two things can sometimes feel like there's just a little a tiny bit of friction in between those values in me and i'm still learning to navigate them um and mainly it works really well i think i think it works very well i mean I th- you mostly you mostly get compliments <laughs> let's, let's congratulate each other on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mostly get thanks um yeah yeah so it's it's, it's good all right uh next and final question um, from Emily Raja. Uh, I just want to tell you that I recently discovered you through a rabbit trail of uh, Paul van der Klee. We really need to send like a thank you card or something. Thank you to Paul, Paul van der Klee, yeah. <laughs> I cried when I heard you speak. I have been searching for Christians whose voice was not a violence against the Arab world at this particular moment. I am married to a Lebanese man who lived through civil war and the Israeli invasion of Lebanon that killed 20,000 people and where his sisters were shot as children. I follow Jesus and live surrounded by Muslims and Arabs with whom I have been sharing the gospel for years. I have been feeling very alone and struggling to figure out how to bear witness to the suffering and despair without it consuming me. How can we counter a Christianity that is ideologically possessed? Gosh, Emily. What a lot to be holding and living with for you and your family and, you know, millions of people. 
I can't pretend to know how we, what wisdom is in these situations. I do feel similarly the horror at the way this tradition that I find to be so liberatory and so freeing and so loving and so justice oriented is so often, too often used to exclude and oppress and excuse. Um, so I guess I can only say how I respond, which is try and live something else, try and live a different logic, try and hold open the space for the treasures and the grace and the compassion to be embodied. And that often that's mainly on what seems like a pathetically local scale. Like how do I love the person who lives next to me? Do I know their name? Am I involved in my local community? Am I connected to the lives of refugees around here? Um, I think in a previous, in previous years of my life, I felt more like it was my responsibility to call out what I see as that misuse, um, to, to challenge on that bigger scale. I, I don't, I don't know that that's any use. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know how to be effective on that, what it would mean for a kind of collective response to your, that beautiful phrase of Christianity that's ideologically possessed. I come back again and again to this phrase from um, John Paul Lederach, who talks about, we don't need critical mass. We need critical yeast. We need to try and be critical yeast. And that was obviously drawing on that new Testament parable about the kingdom of God being like a very small amount of yeast that spreads through the whole loaf. And I don't know how to build critical mass, but I can attempt to be critical yeast and, um, to be modeling and embodying and then failing to model and embody and then repenting and then attempting again to model and embody um, a story that feels like it would welcome the stranger and grieve with those who grieve and um, not care about some lives more than others. But I feel like you have more wisdom on this than I ever will because of what you've lived. And I hope that you will find ways to be offering that to the world too. I think I could probably use it. Thank you for writing. Great. Um, yeah, that's it. That's That was the last question. Oof. I did ramble on there. Um, thank you for uh, listening, friends. Thank you particularly for everyone who wrote in. Um, we'll probably do another one of these episodes at some point. Um, but in the meantime, you don't have to wait for that. You can uh, it, be in touch on our social media platforms. We have an email, which we're going to put in the show notes because I never remember exactly what it is. Um, there's lots of ways to get in touch with us. We're not hard to find. And I, I am in correspondence with some of you and uh, we can feed some of these into future episodes, maybe all of which is say, I've really loved uh, getting to be in at least asynchronous conversation with you. 
We will be back uh, with our new series, which we are really looking forward to in early February. Uh, we will be announcing some of the guests a little bit before that. So stay tuned. Um, is there any other housekeeping done? <laughs> Uh, just please. Um, we've had a really good year past year in terms of growth and, uh, seeing more and more people welcome into this community that we're building. And I guess, um, a big way that we're able to do that and reach new people is by people subscribing, liking, sharing, commenting, um, doing all of the necessary offerings to the algorithm gods. (laughs) Um, we're bowing down to the idols. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, no, it, it really, really has helped. And I think, um, even from some of the questions we've seen that people have been blessed by uh, this podcast. And if, if you've been blessed uh, by the work that we're doing, then it really does mean a lot. If you um, are able to do that little small thing, that'd be great. Yeah. Share and like, and review. Uh, we are going to close uh, the podcast today uh, with a song. Uh, we're trying to uh, mix things up sometimes and share uh, different media. And this is a song written by a friend of mine as a present for me on my 40th birthday, which was a pure delight. It's written by a friend of mine called Leanne Sedin, who um, writes songs about fascinating things and social issues and has an amazing album um, that was streamed on Radio 3 after the pandemic uh, that you can go and find. But it felt very reflective of what we're trying to do here. And I hope you enjoy listening. Share your life with me, fellow 
life with